All right. Good afternoon, everybody. All right, let me try that one more time. Good afternoon, everybody. I know. All right, good, good, good. Like I said this morning, we can't sing in here, but you can talk. Uh, yes, it, I'm glad to be back with you this afternoon to kind of continue pressing into what we started talking about this morning, the beautiful community. Uh, this morning, we talked um, about the life of royalty. Uh, and uh, just one side note about uh, the whole General Assembly moderator thing that uh, Kelly just uh, mentioned. Uh, so I was a the first African-American moderator for the General Assembly of the PCA. Uh, good brother and friend, uh, Dr. Alex Jeanne, was the first uh, ethnic minority moderator. He was a year before me. Uh, he was the 45th moderator, so whenever we talk to one another, he calls me 46, and I call him 45. Uh, so, uh, so this morning we talked about the life of, uh, of royalty, and as you see on the screen this afternoon, I want to talk about uh, the, uh, the source of and solution to or for our uh, discontents. And uh, I will readily admit to you that that title is influenced uh, by the uh, recent excellent book by Isabel Wilkerson, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. Uh, but I wanted to approach this in terms of engaging our divisions and discontents along lines of race, culture, ethnicity, class, and the like by doing a deeper dive into the biblical reason that we have these discontents and God's solution to them. Let me read a passage of Scripture for you, and, um, I, and I'll say a brief prayer. Uh, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, another likely familiar passage for, uh, for many, if not all of us in here. Uh, this is the account of the Tower of Babel, and it reads this way. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its height or top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of all the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. We thank you again, Lord, uh, for your word that is not dead, but living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so we are all in this place, Lord, naked and exposed to you, the one to whom we must all give account. And so would you be pleased to meet us where we are and give us what we need that we might grow up into more faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. So this morning I kind of ended on this note about royal dignity and how we were designed uh, for and in dignity, but most particularly in community. All right, so if God's beauty is seen in his Trinitarian life most profoundly, we should expect that to be reflected in the humanity uh, that images him. And so while each person has uh, a measurable value and dignity, royal dignity as it were, the most uh, profound way and significant way we see, the, we see ourselves as image is in community. A quote here again from Herman Bovink, who put it so well in his uh, Reformed Dogmatics on the image of God, where he says, the image of God is much too rich to be realized in a single human being, however richly gifted that individual or person may be. Then he says, only humanity in its entirety, as one complete organism, summed up under a single head, spread out over the whole earth as prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler exercising control over the whole creation. Only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. You want to see what it means for humanity to be the image of God. He says you have to have glory in view. You have to have Revelation 5 and 7 and 21 in view. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so as we approach this, well, why can't we see it or don't we see it as much as we ought to? I want to start here talking about where our discontents come from by telling you a per little personal story as a way of grasping the source of our discontents. Now, I am a, uh, a native New Yorker, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and um, one way I describe myself is as the son of an immigrant and a migrant. Uh, my father immigrated uh, to New York City from Trinidad and Tobago in uh, the early 1960s, and my mother migrated from Wilmington, North Carolina as a teenager in 1952. And she was a part of that great American migration, the mass exodus of black Americans out of the southern states over a 70-year period from uh, the late 1800s all the way up until 1970. And the fact of the matter is, I love uh, the fact that I'm a New Yorker. I, I love being a New Yorker. Yes, I do carry that sort of sense of New York pride and arrogance and the like. Um, 
I love the fact that I am a fan of the New York Yankees, perhaps the most storied and greatest franchise in the history of professional sports. Here's the deal, however. A tragic event uh, of history set the conditions in Wilmington, North Carolina, that led to my grandmother and her children leaving that city just a few decades uh, later. Uh, David Zucchino, you see in the screen, um, his book, a uh, recent book, just came out late uh, 2019, early 2020, titled Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Crew Coup of 1898 and the Wise of Rise of White Supremacy. It, it details the tragic, armed, hostile coup of the city government in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. I, had an opportunity in God's providence. I was going back to Wilmington in the beginning of this year, in February of this year, to speak and do some ministry work there with some churches. I had not been to Wilmington uh, since uh, we went down for my grandmother's funeral in 1993. So it had been a little bit of a, a, a while before I had, uh, since I had been there. And, um, and I had recently gotten hold of his book and he was, the week before I was going down, he was coming to D.C. Uh, to give a lecture on his book, and I got to meet him, get him to sign it. But the violence in the book that he told about, uh, that he writes about, it left untold numbers of African Americans dead. It, it led to the overthrow of the city government and the installation of the coup leader as mayor. What was the reason for this coup? in Wilmington in 1898. The reason for the coup was a flourishing and growing black community in the city that was becoming a post-Civil War model for black and white cooperation. So when I was down there, I took, they've now got a plaque kind of commemorating where the coup uh, started at this point. And, and you know, Wilmington at that time was the most populous city in uh, North Carolina. Uh, uh, almost half of the 26 police officers of the city were black. You had uh, a growing and thriving black middle class. You, uh, you had a black elected officials. And in the lead up to the coup, uh, Reverend Peyton Hodge, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, he preached white supremacist messages to his congregation. On the Sunday following the coup, Reverend James W. Kramer of, of Brooklyn Baptist Church in Wilmington declared to his congregation, God from the beginning of time intended that intelligent white men should lead the people and rule the country. Reverend Hodge, a First Presbyterian himself, carried around a Winchester rifle during the overthrow. Today we say in many of our circles that politics has no place in the pulpit. 
But Reverend Kramer of Brooklyn Baptist said in his post-coup sermon, I believe that the whites were doing God's services as the results for good have been felt in businesses, in politics, and in the church. We will give the Negro justice and will treat him kindly, but will never again be ruled by him. The Sunday after the coup, Reverend Hodge, a First Presbyterian, opened his sermon with these words, Since we last met in these walls, we have taken a city. Why well, bring up the coup of 1898? That was over 120 years ago. Well, that coup set the city on a course from which it has not yet recovered. In 1898, Wilmington's population was 56% black. Today, it is 18% black. I met earlier this year when I went with a racially and denominationally diverse coalition of pastors who are striving to bear witness in the city uh, to our unity in Jesus Christ. For them and their city, the coup is not ancient history. It still even casts a shadow over the church. They know that they have to engage the lasting effects of this historical event if they're to experience the intimate communion that the scriptures describe of God's people. We see bumper stickers on cars as we drive down the roads calling for us to coexist. In the mid-90s, Rodney King, who had been brutally beaten by police officers in L.A., he, he famously said these words, can't we all just get along? Well, the last time humanity was one big happy family who all just got along is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 11 and verse number 1. It says there, the whole earth had one language and the same words. That's the last time we have humanity all on the same page together. And what was their unity around? Genesis chapter 6 through 9 is a recreation account. God had uh, uh, brought the flood, the chaotic waters that were there in Genesis chapter 1 uh, at the beginning of creation. They come back because of humanity's sin and depravity. And, uh, and God saves Noah and his family. And at the end of chapter uh, 8, the beginning of chapter 9, God reissues the command that he gave to Adam and Eve. He gives it to Noah and his sons. It says God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis chapter 10 starts a new section in the book, and it's the table of nations. It is the descendants of Noah and their, Noah's sons and where they live over the face of all the earth. And so if you're reading sequentially, you might think humanity was obedient to God's command. But Genesis chapter 11 takes a look back to see how Genesis chapter 10 came to be. Humanity had one language. Everyone spoke the same words. God had said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 1, 11 verse 2 says, Now they migrated east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. 
God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Humanity said, no, thank you. We want to settle right here. And then humanity spoke words to one another. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. They said, let's make a name for ourselves. Lest, right, lest we be dispersed from here over the face of the whole earth. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Humanity says, no, thank you. The picture on the screen behind me is the picture of a ziggurat mountain in Ur that was constructed around the year 2100 B.C. Uh, this gets you, gives you a sense of what the Tower of Babel may have looked like. Here's the point. When you read Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel that they are building, it's not some minor construction project. It is, you can see the stairs going up. There would have been a dome at the top, but, you, but uh, time has eroded it away. This is all humanity using all of their technological know-how, ingenuity, architectural ability, genius, and creativity to transgress the throne of God, to be in utter rebellion against God. The last time humanity was one big happy family, we were one big happy family united in our absolute rejection of God's explicit command and our rebellion of his rule and authority over us. Understand, this, this is not just a religious event. It's a, it's a political event. It, they're saying, who's going to rule over us? What kind of government do we want? Governed by God or by ourselves? So the Lord comes down, sees the tower, and you notice what the Lord said? They all have one, they're one people. They've got one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing will be impossible for them. What the Lord is saying is that if I let humanity continue to be completely unified in their sinful rebellion against me, there is no bottom to the depth with which they will sink. If this is what they do, use all their ability to rebel against me, there is no bottom. This is the challenge. This is the source of our discontents because God comes down, confuses our language so that we cannot understand one another. And the Bible says that they stopped building the city. They stopped building the city, but now here is the result and consequence of that judgment. The result and consequence is that we no longer understand one another across lines of difference. The result and consequence is now I get my sense of dignity and value and worth not from being a royal image bearer, but from affiliation with my tribe, my ghetto, my group, whatever it is. And, and, by nature then, sinful nature, I might add, we're hostile to difference. 
We don't want to look and appreciate and value difference. At best, we say, you know what? If you really want to be more human, just kind of become like us if we let you in. Following Babel, there was, by consequence and implication, going to be injustice, oppression, exploitation of one group over another. There was going to be the idolizing of one group and the demonizing of other groups. This is in part why the world doesn't even, doesn't, doesn't have a large enough vision of justice because it can't have a large enough vision of God when I'm relegating my view of humanity primarily to my group and my people. And so, here's how I gotta, this is gonna be hard to read, but look, let me just explain to you. If we, if we view cultures, right, in terms of an iceberg where, you know, as, as it is with an iceberg, most of the iceberg exists below the surface of the water. Think about our culture that way, where above the surface of the water are the things that we experience with our five senses, the things, uh, 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 food, clothing, uh, uh, language, uh, games, festivals, holidays. All of these things that we experience with our senses are where we know that there's cultural difference. And when we engage those differences, right, there is a relatively low emotional load. I might say, oh, do I want to try this kind of food that comes out of a different ethnic group's experience? I like it or I don't like it. It's not going to cause me that much drama or trauma. But be the moment you start going below the surface of the water to the unspoken rules of a culture, the unspoken things, notions of time, ideas of modesty and beauty, uh, uh, notions of, of space, right, personal space and the like, eye contact, body language, all of these things that are manifestations of our cultural realities that, that are unspoken rules. When we start to engage those things, there's a much more intense emotional load for us. They, we notice the differences, and we don't necessarily know why. But then there's an even deeper level, right, of things that are unconscious rules of a culture where the emotional load is incredibly intense when we engage these differences. I mean, look, you, you want to try to do cross-cultural church? You want to try to do multi-ethnic church? Okay, let's just figure out what we're going to do with the children and differences in parenting styles. Right? You want to experience some intense emotional load? Right? Those the differences in how we parent are cultural realities. And so here's the thing, right? Um, these things are still with us. These things are the result of Babel. <laughs> these things are the consequences of Babel, our separation and segregation and our, our 
uh, uh, unwillingness even to, to seek first to appreciate and, um, and understand and look for the beauty of God's creative genius when we encounter differences. This we don't understand, and so we dismiss, biblically speaking. So what's the, what's the solution? What's the solution to our discontents if the source is here in our division at, uh, at Babel? Well, you know, in one sense, right, you know the answer is Jesus, right? Right, that's pretty simple, but here's the deal. Here's how it gets worked out. I love this, right? What follows the judgment of, uh, of humanity in Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel is the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham. Abraham's not thinking about the Lord. He's with his family and his people in Ur of the Chaldeans. And the Lord says to Abraham to get up, go from your father's house and from your country and your kindred and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And the Lord says to him, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great. There's a contrast. The Babylonians said, let's settle here and make a name for ourselves. Let's make ourselves a great name. And then the Lord says to Abraham, he calls Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless those who bless you, Abraham, and whoever dishonors you, I'm going to curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here's the connection. All the families of the earth that I just had to disperse over the whole earth that are separated and segregated. This is a language of reconciliation and reunion and renewal in the seed of Abraham. Because if you pay attention to what it says in Genesis 11, 8, and 9, it says the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth. We had no way to come back together to be reconciled as one people, unity and diversity of our own efforts. In fact, we don't want to do it. And so, if it's going to happen, if beautiful community, unity, and diversity is going to happen, it has to happen by the power of God. It has to happen by the power and promise of God. There's a pattern in the book of Genesis that follows throughout the pattern. Every time you see judgment for sin in Genesis that humanity has caused and sin and they've, and they've been judged, the Lord follows that with covenantal promise. In chapter 3, in humanity's fall, God says he's, he promises the seed of the woman is going to do fatal blow to the head of the serpent's seed. 
in uh, the, the flood in 6 to 9, God prom he covenants afterward and says, I will never again destroy the earth in the flood the way I have. He makes promise and the same pattern is here. Look, humanity, had, we have no ability of our own volition to create reunion and reconciliation in a way that glorifies God. Like we can do it on a sports team for a season to try to win a championship. But we can't do it in the way that is a permanent communion, a permanent bond. And so if it's going to happen, God had to do it himself, and he promised to do it. And yes, in fact, he did do it. He did do it. Here's the deal. I'm going ahead of myself because I'm about to stop. Here's the deal. This is tomorrow. It's already done. You understand? Reconciliation is already done. It's already accomplished in Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, he says that God was pleased to dwell in Christ bodily and through him, he says, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's accomplished. The question is, are we going to live into it? Here's the thing. The solution is not the flattening out and the doing away of differences. What the Spirit of God brings about, is pleased to bring about, is an appreciation for the beauty in our diversity. Glory be to God for dappled things, wrote Gerard Manley Hopkins in his poem, Pied Beauty, to be dappled is to be variegated and exhibiting different colors. And Hopkins in that poem was glorifying God uh, for the skies and the finch, fish and the landscapes and the like. All of the created variety in this world points to the glory and the grandeur of God. Our God loves difference. From the beginning, we were destined for beautiful community. Here's the last thing I'll say, and it's a quote from Stephen Guthrie in his book, Creator Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the Art of Becoming Human. He writes so beautifully, he says, the spirit is not an automated die press, punching out stacks of Jesus copies one after the other. The Spirit's perfecting work is creative and sensitive to the character of the material before him. Those filled by the Spirit are one body of Christ, renewed in his image, yet varieties of services and diverse gifts are given by one and the same Spirit who allots to each one individually as he chooses. The work of the Spirit is both particularizing or diversifying and unifying. 
The distinctiveness of each member does not annul the uh, uh, the does not destroy rather the unity of the body, and the unity of the body does not annul the distinctiveness of each member. The new creation, he says, will be beautiful because there will be harmony and uh, and right relationship between between God and humanity, among humanity, and all, among all that God has made. Each thing will be most truly what it is and what is more amazing the utterly distinct character of each being will contribute to the beauty of the whole this is where we're going this is what God is doing he has provided the solution to our discontents in Jesus Christ and he is committed he is committed to our reunion and reconciliation He's committed to it. It will happen as sure as night follows day. Amen. Amen. All right. I'll stop there.